Hiya, welcome to Our Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So we're late this week. We are travelling. We're in Dublin at the moment. We've been floating about doing stuff, so we just didn't have time to get it out till now. Say hello, Alex. Hey, guys. Um, so we have a Passive House Plus revisited episode with Lloyd Alter, Nick Grant and Alan Clark to talk about an article that appeared ages ago about the Passive House archive that they designed and had built. It's an amazing building. It's an interesting application for Passive House as a standard. Lloyd has been enthusing about it for ages. I mean, I'm sure the episode we did with him last summer about what he did on his holiday to the UK, he talked about it quite a bit then. Um, Yeah, I'll let him introduce it in a second. We do a bunch of rambling and then we get into it. All the links are in the show notes. Uh, Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. And thank you for listening. Sorry, before I let you in, one last note that I forgot to include. We refer to, or Nick and Alan and Lloyd refer to RH quite a lot. RH stands for relative humidity, just in case that was lost on anyone. Right, I will let you go now. Cheers. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thank you for making the time as well. Uh, Nice to see you again. Um, Hi, Louis. What time is it in Canada? Nine o'clock. Morning. Yes. Yes. Very civilised. So you fully caffeinated, Lloyd? I am. I've got my Nixon and Khrushchev uh, coffee mug. And uh, (laughs) I recognise that office, Nick. (laughs) Messy as ever, probably (laughs) just as messy as when you saw it. Hi, Alan. Hello. Hiya. Oh, thanks for joining us, Alan. All right. Yes, thank you so much. It's good to see you both again. Thank you for indulging us last time you appeared on the podcast, where we, where Jeff apparently blindsided you with the idea that it was a recording rather than just a chat about overheating. (laughs) (laughs) You remember now. (laughs) But I think it turned out a really good episode because of the impromptu nature of it. It was uh, really relaxed and very much in the moment because. I think we were all sitting there with windows closed, curtains drawn, trying to work out yeah. how to manage the hottest summer we'd had at any point then. Um, yeah, I think, Lloyd, did you prepare a bunch of questions? Do you want to run through what you think? Yeah, well, well, the thing that excited me most about the building, as I say, is that it is not just a more efficient building because it's passive house. It's not a matter of degree. It's a totally different way of looking at the issue, looking at the concept of dealing with the problem. And that I find really an exciting approach that I've not seen, frankly, anywhere else. So I really wanted to sort of stress the kind of original thinking that went into this, how it came to you, uh, how you sold it, how you convinced first architects and then clients about it, and um, what lessons you really get from that for dealing with other buildings. Uh, I just found it so exciting that, as I say, you know, here's a building type that people don't think about a great deal, and you've turned it on its head. So that's what I'm hoping for. I want to uh, sort of, again, stress my excitement with something that's normally pretty boring. And I have to now get up and go get Kleenex because I have a cold and I have to blow yeah. my nose. Yeah. I mean, the brief for us for this, when the job came up for the, the archive that uh, Lloyd saw, was, you know, from the archive saying, can we do a passive house archive? And we'd seen one in Dresden, which was a passive house archive and did all the usual passive house stuff. And it was an archive low energy. Uh, but as Alan says, we'd 
we'd had some contact with Tim Padfield many years ago, who'd looked at the moisture buffering. And we kind of questioned whether the passive house was actually the way, but we we did use what we knew from passive house, like the air tightness, the thermal bridging, some of the modeling tools we developed. And we, so we applied them. So we're kind of bringing the two together, but we definitely questioned the sort of blind application of passive house, which we could have done. Um, so I think the interesting thing moving forward with anything is just going back to first principles, but it's saying, as you say, trying to, what, what are you trying to achieve rather than how do we apply whatever tool we have, whether it's standard HVAC or passive house or whatever. We better get started, I think. Should we yeah, just yeah. get started now that I've got my Kleenex and my coffee? Sorry about <laughs> all that. Cool. All right. Crack on, Lloyd. When I was in the UK in the spring, I went to Hereford to visit Nick Grant and talk to Nick Grant because I reference him in my new book. And he took me for a drive and we passed a, an archive in Hereford that he said was Passive House Design. And that said, okay, that's very nice. I love Passive House, but there's something really special about this building. And it really, I think, is a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of thinking about the particular use we have here. So I asked Nick and Alan to come here and be on this uh, this show and discuss this. So could you two please, Alan, introduce yourself and explain what you do? And then Nick, will you do the same? Okay. Hi, Lloyd. Yeah, I'm Alan Clark. I'm uh, an energy and building services engineer. I've been always working in sort of low energy buildings, that kind of approach, and been in Passive House since we started in the UK about 15 years ago, I think, and work on a range of buildings, houses, schools, but also, as you're looking at here, archives, often with Nick. So, yeah, um, so I'm freelance energy consultant. Um been Originally studied mechanical engineering design, but I dropped out of university and been sort of self-employed ever since and got into building stuff um, some years ago, partly through building our own house. I'm just interested very much in how things go together. I discovered a passive house in, when was it, 2007 or something, went to a conference, partly to debunk it at the time. And we were discussing in the UK whether to sort of try and improve our methods or whether to this newfangled German thing that used different conventions and probably was going to be really complicated and difficult being German. Um, so I went over to debunk that in Brigant's conference there and came back enthused, having seen some actual buildings that worked. And Alan and I have known each other since the 1980s. We just keep bumping. We've got a bit of sort of coincidental history. It goes back a long way, but uh, yeah, we've been working together for a while now. Now, we should explain for people who are listening who maybe don't know that passive house does not mean house. It's the German word for building, am I correct, house? So that passive house is a system that can apply to any kind of building, not houses. And in this case, we're talking about applying the passive house principles to an archive. So I guess the question I have to ask, you know, i I always thought archives were fairly high-tech buildings filled with thermostats and humidistats and big boxes of heating, ventilating, and air conditioning equipment, and often in dumb, dull boxes out in some industrial estate. These buildings, these archives that you're doing are very, very different. Can you explain, is it my understanding that it's really the paper inside that is doing the heavy lifting in this building? That's part of the... The answer, yes, but it's um, it's more the envelope is probably doing the creation of the environment that works. I mean, we probably need to wind back a few stages, I think. So these heavily serviced boxes, what they're actually trying to do is maintain things at pretty cool temperatures, um, definitely lower than normal room temperatures, maybe looking at between 13 up to 20 degrees being what people like to deal with. 
some things generally degrade less when they're colder. But the thing we actually worry about more in our climate is humidity, mold growth. If you keep things cold, you'll be familiar if you live in the UK or probably other parts of the world as well, that they will get moldy as well. So a lot of what that equipment is doing is, as well as controlling the temperature, is trying to control humidity. And I think what's happened in a way is that people have said, what's your ideal conditions? And they've said, well, you know, maybe 17, 18 degrees and 50% relative humidity. And the engineers have gone away and come up with a standard solution that will achieve that. But that's definitely not the only way of doing it. So that's kind of where we've come in. One of the problems with that way of doing it is quite energy intensive to do that. And then actually, when we started researching some sort of past examples prior to starting on the Hereford job, was finding that what people would then do is have a nice um, public space or um, offices on the ground floor, all made sort of a lot of sense um, circulation wise and put the storage areas above, directly thermally connected, continually trying to maintain three or four degrees temperature difference between them, running heating and cooling simultaneously throughout the year and just racking up massive energy bills. And the first sort of step actually, I think, was to rethink the architecture to avoid that. Yeah, I think that's key when we've come and look we've done a lot more existing archives and we've gone in to fix problems because you know archive new archives don't come up very often and sometimes you're just stuck with the the archive maybe in the worst thing is in the middle you're surrounded by habitable spaces for instance and you're going to have to cool it all year round you're going to be heating the surrounding spaces and cooling the middle bit so as Alan says the first thing is to try and get the building right if you can do that which for new build we can in terms of the paper doing the heavy lifting i kind of think of it a bit more like thermal mass in that it will have a big effect on the environment and we can use that. So if we've got masses of paper, then how we control it, most of the work is, you know, the paper's going to, as Alan said earlier, it's going to be absorbing moisture when the RH goes up. It's going to be releasing moisture when the RH goes down and that's going to regulate the conditions, but it won't regulate it forever. It'll, just like a heavy building, will eventually respond to the outside environment, just slows it down. So part of the thing is we try and take a fairly long-term view of what's happening with the moisture rather than looking at the air minute by minute, which might just fluctuate because someone's breathed on a sense or opened a door. But the conditions in the space are really driven by what's in the moisture, in the paper rather. So if we have a space with very little paper, like a furniture store, then we'll have a different approach. So it's, you know, the paper is it's not so much it does the work, it gives us opportunities and it gives us problems. So we just have to deal with that. So if you were doing a uh, furniture storage, you would not have that thermal mass, you would have to think about the building differently because you have a lot more air and a lot less mass. I think fundamentally not that different. So um, sort of yeah, going back to that storing things in this country and not letting them get moldy, the water vapour is not generated inside the archive. No one is, you know, the usual problem we've got in housing is people who are cooking their pasta and drying their towels and all that kind of stuff. None of that's happening in the archive. The only moisture source apart from the moisture that's in the building when you seal it up, is brought in with air coming in from outside. So what's turned out to be critical is air tightness, which is part of the passive house package. So it kind of looking, we're doing a passive house architect archive, well, it would be airtight. What are the implications of that? And that basically was, well, if we don't have any ventilation at all, we're not going to bring any moisture in. And then actually that means it might just sit at the same as the outside moisture level, which is too high. But if we just put a little bit of air in and dehumidify that air, and it's airtight so no other air is leaking in, then we've kind of solved the moisture problem really just by just sort of tipping the balance very gently towards a drier environment. So that was the key thing is just looking at the moisture balance. The way the paper helps is that you don't have to worry about it day to day or even month to month. We just got to get so many tons of moisture in there 
kept at the right sort of level for the books and what's in the air will just follow what's in the paper because the paper holds I was going to look the numbers up, but I'm sure it's more than 99% of the actual water in the building. And as Nick was saying, if if the air gets drier, just a bit more water evaporates. It needs to be in an equilibrium between the paper and the air. So it kind of self-steers. It's a bit different from other buildings where you need ventilation for people, but right. it does apply over to other archives quite well. It's just a bit less stable, but it may not matter so much. You know, if you've got bits of metal, they don't care so much, but we still don't, don't want them to rust. I was just going to say, the stability thing we've actually got a bit obsessive about because we've managed to achieve with the good air tightness and if there is a lot of paper, the RH like varying one or two percent per year, which is way better than it needs to be. I think the regular, I don't even look at the standards because we're so beyond it, but I think it's is it five percent plus or minus in 24 hours or something, percent percentage points. So we're just so far off that it's become a bit of a sort of an OCD thing, seeing how stable we can get it. But it really, Alan says, it doesn't matter that much. If you take a piece of furniture, the RH goes up a bit briefly. It's not suddenly going to shrink or expand or crack or anything. Um, the object's reasonably robust as long as the change is fairly slow. Jonathan Hines showed a graph in a presentation about the building that I saw at a Denver Passive House conference a few weeks ago that I think was the humidity graph. And it was like dead flat right across the table for the entire year. I mean, no flickers or bumps at all. It was quite impressive. But given that you had to probably convince Jonathan and the architects at Archetype and then the client about this, was this a tough sell? because nobody had done it like this before? Or is there precedent that you could rely on? Like I was thinking maybe like every archive in the 19th century would be like this, wouldn't it? There was no mechanical system. I got this answer. The Tim Padfield work was really good for this, but there weren't many, we hadn't visited anything. The only archive you know, we visited have been air-conditioned ones or the Passive House one in Dresden. So we'd read up on the um, Passive Source, but surprisingly few had happened. And again, that comes back to the question, yeah, this is so brilliant. It's fraction of the energy it's cheaper to build it works better why isn't everyone doing it and tim padfield's been talking about this stuff for a long time his website's there sadly he died a few years ago but the website's still there it's available for everyone completely free he was absolutely committed to open source information often we'd visit existing archives and there's a report already written explaining what they should do which was usually turn everything off and monitor and then maybe tweak things and we've just followed behind and actually done this so I don't, it's a bit of a question why stuff hasn't been done but in terms of convincing people, first of all, we had to convince ourselves. So we we did a lot of reading. We did some experiments, you know, putting bags in in plastic bags, uh, sorry, books in plastic bags and looking at the RH, temperature change, all sorts of, sort of small-scale experiments. Um, so we had to convince ourselves that it would work. But yeah, without now we've got examples we can take people to. It's a lot easier. There was a bit of a – there is still, I think, a, a sort of a lack in the standard energy modelling software. So we built our own – model in Excel, which is fairly basic, just looking at moisture in a different way. So the usual way is looking at everything from the air side. It just assumes you're putting in loads of air, many air changes of an hour through a building. And you can then legitimately focus on the psychrometrics of the air, work out humidity loads, dehumidification loads, cooling and heating and all that, and just not worry about how the humidity is interacting with the building because it will just follow the air at the end of the day. So we needed to not use those models. We had quite a different result compared with the building services engineers who did use those models. I think we were writer probably um, in terms right. of the humidity because um, you know, it's back to first principles where the how many kilograms of moisture are where, water and what's going on. But we did have a handle on it, I think, from actually a passive house background. But more of a downside really is that you often get to a situation where you've got wet trades in a passive house 
they kind of do their work before you've got any ventilation, but the windows are in. Right. And you're stuck with the inside of a house sat at um, you know, 70, 80% relative humidity, and it just won't go unless someone you have to bring in dehumidifiers. And builders are not used to this. They're used to their buildings being so leaky that there's enough air movement to dry them out. We sort of already got an intuitive feel for the fact that moisture isn't going to go in and out of an airtight building like you're used to. Now, again, the Jonathan Hines had a great quote when he was talking about a skeptical client saying the Titanic was said to be unsinkable when you were presenting the model. And Hines said, we aren't designing the Titanic, we're designing the iceberg. And Colin's joke. That was you. That <laughs> yeah. was your joke. Well, it's a great line. Because again, you're talking about the iceberg, like it's the big mass. And that's yeah. why I kept saying it sort of does the work. But the client's also liked this idea, again, because you're saying, well, you could say it's going to be cheaper and you're not going to have the operating costs. Was it a hard sell with them? Well, there was some scepticism and there there was, for the first one, a fallback position. So the, there is some heating plant in there. And we did put a fairly conventional fresh air handling unit in. So the fresh air supply is you know, fully conditioned. But the um, size of the kit is still smaller because engineers were aware of the loads they were dealing with even if it didn't follow the our model they still wouldn't have to do as much work otherwise and i think it was then a very easy to sell to say well you've got that in case it doesn't work but let's just try it without turning this boiler on which was fine uh, when you did your second one in duxford did you then have enough of the track record that you could just say oh, we're not going to put any of that backup mechanical stuff in absolutely yes got a quite a nice card from the uh, client actually on that one when we got to um when it was all built and finished. So every, all the design team got a little card and this one says, ta-da, let's hope it works, Nick. <laughs> so a bit of a running <laughs> joke for it. Since the, the Hereford archive, I was caught by the architect saying, if this works, it's going to be a world first. I was told you shouldn't say that in front of the client. So it's become a bit of a running theme for us. When we do something new, we say, if this works, it'll be a world first. And so obviously you've got to be pretty confident when you're doing a multi-million pound building and our PI is only half a million quid. You've got to be yeah, fairly confident it's going to work. Be confident. May I ask a question? Like, how did you deal with the client's emotional anxiety around the subject? Like, claiming a world first is a really good way of appealing to their egos, should they have egos. But the rest of it, like, oh, man, no one likes changing construction, do they? I mean, who the client is is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we, we quite like dealing with the, the archivists and the conservators because they're kind of dealing with the objects. I mean, they know what matters. They're not, you know, they're, they're caring about the real stuff and they're very, usually quite pragmatic. But then you've got the other people who are paying the bills. It might be a council or it might be a board of trustees. So there's the client's quite a broad spectrum. But generally, the, the technical people who are responsible for the objects, they usually get it. Um, so they're less of a problem. And they have, they've lived in work with buildings that go wrong all the time and cause all sorts of problems. So they can really see the sense. So they're the ones usually pushing to do this stuff. But yeah, who the client is is an interesting question. With the Hereford one, with the you know the basic passive house or you know standard passive house efficiency measures, and therefore the massive downsizing of all the equipment that did go in meant I think it was still coming out cheaper than the non-passive house budget estimates. So that they weren't unhappy about that. No, I would have thought after doing two of these that like all the archives in the world would be lining up at your doors. But I just saw an announcement of a big new archive being built in Scotland. And I'm wondering, are they other people still going with the age tried and true, lots of mechanical equipment, let's do it the old way? Or are they lining up and knocking on your door? 
If that's the one I think it is, then it's um, Archetype did bid for that with us. And I think we came second, so we didn't get it. So I, I don't know exactly. I did see the um, director of collections the other week at the Passwords conference, and but I don't know exactly what they're doing. I didn't sort of quiz too uh, too strongly on that, so I'm, I'm not sure. Hey, there is a, there is a general way if you go out to building services engineers, they will still read the brief and uh, apply the usual, basically. And they love they love specking lots of equipment, and contractors love buying lots of equipment. It's probably not the easiest sell, even with two examples sitting on the ground. But you know, I was thinking as I was writing out my questions of a book that had a real influence on me, which was Rainer Banham's Architecture of the Well-Tempered Environment. Back in 1969, he wrote it, and he basically was complaining that architects and designers have sort of abdicated their responsibility for indoor comfort, designing without consideration of the consequences of for the indoor environment, and just handing the whole thing over to contractors and engineers to solve it for them. And he talked about how by providing almost total control of the atmospheric variables of temperature, humidity, and purity, it has demolished all of the environmental constraints that have survived uh, through history. It's now possible to live in any type or any form of house one likes to name in any region in the world, given this convenient climactic package, these boxes of knobs and controls. Uh, one may live under low ceilings in the humid tropics, behind thin walls in the Arctic, and under uninsulated roofs in the desert. So what I'm getting to here is sort of moving away from just the archive, but to the question, are we finally learning this lesson? that we shouldn't be relying on the neat box with control knobs and an electrical connection, but getting more into sort of full system, holistic thinking, that it's not just a decorated shed you hand over to engineers, but really the engineering concept is driving the bus, which I guess it is in, pass in every passive house, right? That the systems thinking is driving the bus rather than the architectural design. Uh, do you think that that's this is the main lesson from this archive, or am I just reaching? It's kind of more of a, a general passive house one. Just I saw your question and thought, oh, that's that's funny because of the the Duxford building is basically a shed. The uh, environmental stuff was pretty much sorted from the concept, and then the rest of the time and money was spent decorating it, particularly looking at the details of the shadow gaps between the core ten and. You know, I think Nick sat through a lot of meetings where you know, he'd done the basics, it's air tightness, we put a bit of dehumidified air in. Now, the important stuff, how are we going to make it look pretty in the pictures? Which it does. I thought it funny that they would design an archive that's supposed to last last for centuries out of Corten, because for years Corten had a problem that it's sort of self-rusting and eventually will perforate and fall off. I mean, how long do they expect the Corten to last? I don't know, but they made holes in it already, so it's fine. Purely <laughs> visual. I don't think it's doing any function. Um, it's not, yeah. I think there's a wider thing there, um, Lloyd. I mean, as Alan said before, when you think, when first thing we thought about was how does the warm bit relate to the cool bit and, you know, whether you put it on top or next to. But I think just the wider approach with design, as we see it, because we're, you know, with wider buildings, we're thinking about daylight, views, um, all the sort of functional, you know, the whole range of, of, things is how we approach design as engineers whereas often we find with architecture you, you're kind of drawing the shape from the outside or a concept and then trying to shoehorn everything in so i think it goes way beyond just the environmental conditions of temperature and humidity and so on it's daylight it's you know 
the shape of the building, space, everything, structure, all the way through. So we'd rather, you know, everyone was thinking about structure, materials, everything from day one. Um, that integrated approach, I think, is key. Um, but yeah, if you get it wrong with an archive, then it does really make it, you committed to air conditioning, um, trying to cool it or heat it or whatever. Certainly, in in general, I mean, we've um, worked with archetype, particularly on schools um, in the passive house field, and there was always a bit of back and forth about how um, Nick and I were basically trying to nibble away at the sort of architectural flair and delight with pragmatic constraints, I'd say. But the, the you know the, the beauty and the result is where you can embrace those constraints and still produce um, great architecture. Well, I'm thinking back to a wonderful article from your blogging days, Nick, that you wrote about uh, simplicity. And I have a whole chapter in my upcoming book, The Story of Upfront Carbon, that's sort of based on that, that quotes you about simplicity and the importance of it. And, you know, both of these buildings are, uh, these two archives are very simple buildings. I'm wondering if you could just talk for a moment about your thoughts about simplicity. I remember when I first learned them at the Passive House Conference in Vienna, when you were up on stage trying to explain value engineering, which are the two words that architects hate more than any other words in the universe, and you made it seem reasonable. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, simplicity first, it's it's not it's not easy. I don't find it easy. To, you know, the tendency is to complicate things. As soon as we, like with the archives, we suddenly think of a clever control system that we can do that would do, and it, you've got to keep resisting those things. And some of the things we resisted too long, because one of the clever things you can do is grab the air from outside when it's a bit drier than the air inside. And people have tried that and it hadn't worked. And we thought, right, we won't go there. But that's something that now, with the lessons we've learned, we've been able to revisit that and do it in a simpler way. So we, we're looking to do that just you're looking at outside temperature. So we're not looking at the dew point, which is difficult to do, and you end up with BMS and multiple sensors and all sorts of stuff to go wrong. So we've kind of revisited that and done. A, we're doing a simple take on that. And we're trying that on a couple of buildings. There's one existing archive, which we think is kind of close to working. It just needs nudging in the right direction. So for a few hundred pounds or just under a thousand pounds, we can we can adapt existing kit for a quite a large archive with three three big stores and try that so that's you know trying to take a simpler approach and we're constantly re revisiting that the value engineering one's interesting because when i studied engineering i was completely unaware that in in building you know we wasn't i wasn't aware of building at the time value engineering was taught as a really positive thing it was the sort of core to design is how you make things better you know more effective and and anyway, if you you know you, you know the background to where it comes from in Second World War, and that's what we were taught. So when I'm sat in a design team meeting and I mention value engineering and people start spitting feathers, I'm just kind of thinking, where the hell did that come from? Um, so so I came to I was a bit surprised to sort of wandered into that without realizing. Um, so yes, genuine value engineering to me is the sort of key to all good design. Yes, and architects hate it because they always think that these guys are going to come along and rip every architectural detail off their building. And, and the point is, if you design a good building in the first place, there shouldn't be anything to take off. Absolutely. It's, it's yes. frustrating. We've seen a few projects that, you know, go sometimes it's on the third um, feasibility study or something. They had loads of people who had to go at this and they get again over budget, doesn't get built, and everyone's time is wasted. That's a bit depressing. So we'd really like to sort of usually do that value engineering up front, design something that can be built, get it under budget because everything goes over budget and costs going up all the time. So let's, you know, come up with stuff that can be built for, for less than the budget and then it might happen. Um, but it's just, yeah, very frustrating seeing what the money's spent on. 
But your ideas of simplicity, what I like, there's another project that Archetype did, which was a housing project and very simple building forms, no bump outs, no jogs, relatively small windows, put where you need them, essentially designed from the inside. And most architects have so much trouble dealing with simplicity. They add layers of complexity, especially in American architecture. You look at some houses and there'll be 50 gables and 50 jogs and giant windows and bays and boxes and that because they can't see it done as a simple form. Whereas some of those projects you've worked on, the, the simplicity is just elegant. And um, I think it's wonderful that you've sort of trained those architects so well they don't let us work on all the jobs they work on some they don't even show, even show us but the, the, there's something interesting this this idea about um or, or what's the quote ornament is crime or whatever there's a sort of idea that you can't do decoration on buildings but the trouble is if you do a, a large you do a small building like you've met um you've seen your chick's house you know beautiful it's very simple materials and it looks very you know just the pattern on the wood and the just the finishes are enough to decorate it. When you get a very big building, it all looks a bit plain and bland. And if we don't have any decoration of some form, then the way that that happens, so you're not allowed to do decoration because that's fake. Um, so you end up decorating with changing the shape of the building, which to my mind is even more fake and it's creating all these problems. So we articulate the building for no apparent reason. Sometimes there's a real reason to change the shape of a building to get views or daylight or dual aspect or to fit with a plot. But if you just change your shape just to make it look more interesting, then that's that sort of seems to be what happens. Uh, but that's seen as okay, but some sort of decoration um, somehow is fake. So anyway, that's, yeah, it's like putting the structure on the outside as expression of structure, which an engineer would never do. It's sort of tuck it away where it's not going to get damaged. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> like Duxworth is not, at, in terms of a building form, it couldn't be simpler. And it's facades, its exterior couldn't be simpler. And yet by the choice of material and what they did with the material, it really looks elegant and terrific. It is a beautiful box. So yeah, careful, we mustn't bite the hands at feeders because we can easily criticize all, all the architects we ever work for and then never work again. But I mean, it's interesting you're saying it's simple. It, it was simpler, but looked less simple. So originally it was just designed as a, literally a box. And then there was a canopy for a loading bay outside. So it actually would look less simple. Um, but once the idea of simplicity was embraced, the idea was to make it look so you can't see the doors, you can't see anything from the outside. You don't see the pressure relief vents. And that that sort of visual simplicity adds complications. So we had to sort of make the vents disappear because they're powder coated aluminium. But to do them in um, Core 10 is difficult because they're heavier. So actually trying to make it look even simpler, this, again, it's the difference between architectural simplicity and engineering simplicity. So, yeah. So what are the main lessons that you learn from the archives that you can apply to everything else? I mean, what are the lessons, since most people who are listening to this will never be working on archives, what are your main, that you learned that's the most important lesson from those buildings? I think it's probably reinforcing it, seeing something boil down to the simplest possible solution that we can come up with and finding it works better than the more complicated one is you look at somebody's design for something that has got to be out of hand and just think now not will that go wrong but which way will that go wrong first and um, it's, it's been quite heartening to see that taking stuff out so that it can't go wrong has led it led to a more robust solution we as nick says we've been around you know, dozens of failed or failing or 
unwell archive building services and if you imagine you know you bought a car in the 90s and you haven't actually taken it to a garage since 2005 but you've kept running it things won't all be working perfectly and that's that's what we find and even when people have kept the main bits working they the sensors are wrong and it's just um not doing what it's supposed to and so now we can kind of look at it and think well if you're going to rely on these three sensors all being within two percent to get the thing to work right and we know they only come at three percent out of the box and they start falling off year by year then that's just that we know how that's going to fail but it could fail a different way but yeah seeing how um we've got to see how ours fails next as well of course um it's interesting how the with the passive approach the failure is quite slow so we've had a few projects where we've done the initial thing you know it's an existing building we've turned all the stuff off done some air improvements and then we've proposed the next stage which was maybe add a simple low level dehumidification that hasn't happened because the conditions are now fine so we can look at the graphs and over several years see the humidity just slowly slowly creeping up which is not an experiment we'd normally if we said to someone can we just turn everything off for a few years and see what happens no one would let us do that with their valuable collection but we've kind of been fortunate that that sort of has been able to see that happen on some projects and nothing goes drastically wrong and they can take sort of simple low-tech measures they can run plug-in dehumidifiers for a bit and so on um not ideal but you know it's it's not catastrophic and everything's just happening really slowly um so it's quite good something we did say um alan said about in archive we don't ventilate which is we've we've sort of chosen to do the dehumidification in a way where we do supply a bit of fresh air. And it's a really low level. It's sort of one air change a day. But in terms of the number of people working in archive, that's actually loads of air for the people working in there, because these are usually quite big buildings relative to the numbers of people. So there's a bit of a myth going around that in these passive buildings that are all airtight and locked up, you don't go in because it'll upset the conditions. And in the early days, we were saying, you know, how many people times a day, how long will the lights be on? And this sort of thing is worth knowing, but it's turned out not to be super critical. Um, so again, that's something which has come with, I mean, calculated, but it's come with experience as well. We're a lot less worried. Yeah, I'm going to put my hand up and just say, are there any questions that you think I should be asking or that we should be talking about? Or Dan, any, anything I've missed? Well, I, I'm really interested in the fail-safes, like post-occupancy evaluation, monitoring is anathema to the the industry of the built environment. No one likes having their homework marked. but Essential to the, the the premise of this project or these projects is that your homework is being marked by the quality of the, the building. And it's an easily definable problem or challenge as compared to people in a building. So how, how was the monitoring set up? And I mean that more with reference to like what sort of fail safes and mechanisms for warnings or alerts have you established? Because as you just said, like these, this sort of a project, it being passive, it is a mass. It, it's a really long lead time before problems begin to emerge, and we don't expect to see problems. But it's vital that this is, well, the 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 delicate nature of the cargo of this building. It needs to be. I think the meeting where Alan made the joke about the Titanic and the iceberg, if I remember it right, that was the one when they were talking about um, the BMS being able to send out SMS messages to the archivist. So if sort of Sunday afternoon, something went out of condition, she'd get a text, but she didn't have a mobile phone. So we were sort of thinking, you know, how are we going to do this? <laughs> and it just seems a joke now because you could sort of write her a letter, um, post it by 
carry a pigeon or something it's you know if she's on holiday for a few weeks she'll get it when she gets back and then can think whether to do something about it or not so that urgency is kind of gone with i'm talking about with the passive type stuff we're also doing freezer stores that are sat at minus 20 there's other things which are much more conditioned they're still taking the efficient approach and learning from the passive measures but the the specific sort of paper stores and the furniture stores and the stuff is just kind of sat there drifting with the seasonal temperature buffering and just not doing very much they just yeah there's no urgency but we do the monitoring is important mainly for our interest with the hereford archive every month we're sent and it still happens it's all these years later every month get an email with the latest graphs and it's and a bit of banter about you know this month is particularly boring but with some of the projects particularly ones where we've turned all the kit off or sites that have got lots going on with very active conditioning then we often have remote access so we can log in i was just looking this morning at Duxford and just looking at conditions there. Sometimes we've had a really hot spell or a very wet spell, and we're just kind of curious, yeah, has, can you see it in the graphs or how has that responded? Or, you know, so we do, yeah, as you say, the feedback is important and we actively seek that. Yeah, we really want to know that feedback. Isn't interesting sort of um, reason why archives are a bit of a special case in terms of this post occupancy evaluation? So there's a, you know, an archives, you know, if you want to set up an archive, you have to be, um, overlooked by the archive authority i've forgotten their precise name and you have to have you know credible monitoring equipment that runs continuously you might be allowed to go and download it every month if that's your approach because they do know it works slowly but you don't find a normal bms system keeping data over the years but archivists keeping data over the years is just what they do so they love a bit of data so we've not got any other projects that have this level of post occupancy monitoring and conditions it's done to a really high standard as a matter of course because they are archives so that's been quite an interesting thing they've um, got objects they really care about you know it's that's the other thing it's um i think Eames talked about a kite problem you alluded to the idea is very clearly defined you know what is okay we might be accepting variations in temperature and humidity which you know rather than fixed ones but the main thing is the objects don't suffer and um, these are often irreplaceable valuable objects you know this is this kind of matters you can sort of say oh but my high-end architect building it's uncomfortable but what about the art what about the views or what about you know various other things but with with the archives it's pretty and museums as well it's clearly defined i was wondering as well you might not want to talk about this but i heard you're you might be working in ireland as well now like taking this project further afield well, Mark Barry and I were asked to go and give a talk in Dublin, Mark, uh, Mark Barry, Director of Archetype. So we'd, uh, one of the things, nice things with the Hereford Archive, an archive is all talk to each other. So again, if we if we screw up, you know, everyone's going to know about it. Um, but a lot of people go and visit Hark, and we've often, because it's just down the road, we often go and give a talk. So we did that for some people from the um, Museum, uh, National Museum of Ireland, and people from the the library in Dublin. Um, so they came over a few years ago before COVID, and then we just we thought we didn't hear from for ages. We thought it's something I'd said, but um, they eventually asked us back, and we gave a talk a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, that was very interesting. I don't know, it's yeah, what will will be interesting to have some input. Some of this stuff we can do quite light touch. We can just steer people in the right direction. So we just hold their hands whilst they do stuff like turn things off and you know nudge things in the right right way. So it's some of it is really quite giving confidence, I suppose. And that's another way in which you you manage the client anxiety, gentle handholding. Yeah, and just keep an eye on. Just say, look, yeah, it's yeah. So far, it's worked. 
So when I was in when I was in Dublin, I went to the famous library, the wonderful famous library that every tourist goes to. And here was a building designed for books, obviously hundreds of years ago. And there were a thousand people in there every moment. It's just the most popular tourist attraction next to the Guinness Brewery, I think. And my question to you, would all the books in there now be like, not fake, but like books of no value? Because how do you actually have a library with like thousand people going through it every hour all day long? Or can something like that be handled by an engineer to actually make it so that those books aren't just going to all fall apart. I'm just curious, since you mentioned Dublin, and I was in that mob scene. I mean, generally, but you've got you've got books on your shelves in the background. They're not normally sort of falling apart because of the room conditions with normal normal conditions. Yeah, the stuff with the deep storage, usually like the bookstores and the archives, somewhere where they put the really valuable things that, you know, maybe a thousand years old and irreplaceable that would be terrible. Whereas if you put it in the library, someone could get the sticky fingers on it or tear a page out. You know, it's, there's a different level of risk, isn't there, in the, in the people's archive, in the people's library. Um, so I think there's a, yeah, there's stuff in case, stuff in deep storage, which is a bit more precious. And they right. don't let you touch. I'm just looking at a sort of some retrofit work on a museum, which has people coming in, loads of people every day. And it's a slightly different challenge. And, it actually becomes apparent that these archives that you think are um, a really difficult thing to do, they're, they're kind of easy in a way because you can just shut things up and leave them to it. And yeah, when you have people coming in and out, you're probably going to need, well, you're definitely going to need some kind of mechanical services. So the interesting thing now is to take what we understand from dealing with the simple case and applying it to the more complicated case. And I think, but we don't know yet because we've We've got one example in um, Hereford, actually, in the cathedral, which we're, we're watching, which is to see that you've got to do some ventilation, but there's we can now bring in a different um, passive house um, type of technology, which is MVHR, but with enthalpy recovery, so that you try and sort of um, limit the ingress of moisture from outside and stop it drying out too much in the winter. So you can sort of try and still retain that buffering while introducing fresh air ventilation for people. Kind of thing, that's where that's going to kind of go. Um, we first of all got a. I've seen in these um, museums that the, there's again there's a default hammer that the building services engineers use for energy efficiency is what's called free cooling, and they just do a quick temperature check, see ah it's a bit warm inside, it's a bit cold outside. We'll just bring in loads of fresh air, and not really care about what they're doing to the moisture balance of things. So that's probably going to change. We might think actually it's better for the collection to just go straight to cooling, and not try and do that. The other thing which is also good, which we also incidentally was at um, Hereford Cathedral, which is um, storage of the key artefact there, which is the map of Monday, Mundi, the very old, precious map. And that just goes in its own sealed case. So you can have a glass front, but we can still replicate our archive conditions with the buffering of the material and with extra moisture buffering hidden inside the case. And that's a solution that I think is becoming hopefully more common in or maybe it's already quite well established in museums that you can basically create your sealed archival conditions inside a public space as so long as you've got a airtight glass box to do it in you can even do that in the tropics you have to change the buffering material every year or so depending how tight the case is but you can sort of precondition silica gel for instance to 50 percent or whatever humidity you want put it in the case seal it up 
and then obviously there'll be some ingress however good the case is so it'll it'll slowly creep higher and then every year you change the material dry out the old and goes for another year so that's an idea that's been around since the 70s um, but it's getting cases that are genuinely well made that the seal designs are good that you can get that extreme level of airtime which again from our passive house work it wasn't that passive house needs such extreme levels of airtime it's but We've learned how to do air tightness simply so you accidentally end up with it once you've learned how to do it you end up with even better air types than you need for passive house which proves useful for cases or um, archives and so on i suppose this retrofit instance where you're dealing with existing well-used buildings is where a case for more aggressive monitoring and warning and fail safes would become a a wise thing to, to put in place well, I suppose we're a little way off that yet because we can't be bothered doing that with most buildings anyway, can we? I mean, with the museums where you're actively ventilating and conditioning, yeah, you need ongoing monitoring. But there's a church in Edinburgh that was converted to an archive for records and it's not insulated at all. It's not particularly airtight. We did a blower door test and we couldn't really work out how to make it much better. And that's actually just turned off huge amounts of air conditioning plants, turned it off before COVID. And that's been you know, surprisingly good conditions because it drifts with the seasons. It goes a bit cooler in winter. So that means it doesn't get too dry and it gets a bit warmer in summer, which means it doesn't get too moist. And it just kind of works. I and mean, that was sort of lucky it gets enough heat from adjacent offices to be just in the right range. Uh, but sometimes, you know, that's a pretty old, very unsophisticated building. And it just, but it's big. It's a big lump of building with a lot of paper in it. So, yeah, small rooms are the trickiest because if it's tiny and hasn't got much buffering, then, you know, it could change more quickly. There's certainly a case where you're saying you need this um, monitoring, but actually the problems are, you know, what in medicine is called iatrogenic, which is actually introduced by the building services. And you might find you've got multiple bits of plant in a building. Some of them are powering, you know, they've got their humidity setting, so they're chucking steam into the um, ventilation system. The other one thinks it's a bit too humid, it's frantically dehumidifying, and they're just uh, all working away. And then also you then get the situation where they've cranked up one side of the system, maybe just always done the humidification really well, but the dehumidification's failed. And then you wonder why when the conditions change, it's got too moist. Well, you've just been putting moisture in for the last six months. It's not surprising, but if we just go to a more of a, a passive approach in terms of um, enthalpy recovery and heat recovery and not try and do the close control thing where you're um, doing both things almost at once so that you get into into trouble so then i think there's a bit more robustness there from having seen what we see go wrong you think you know we certainly see you know passive houses with just doing heat recovery ventilation and you you lose the heating where well, you're not losing much heat so you've got a fairly robust situation there for a start if you imagine you were trying to run separate air conditioning in every room heating the ones on the south side and cooling you know heating the ones on the north side and cooling the ones on the, the other side um like every so office good. building that was built in the 70s yes yeah <laughs> they can be I'm, uncomfortable i'm just i was just thinking while you were talking that i've always thought passive house was a terrible terrible name because it's not passive and particularly when you take it to north america where americans like being active active and they i mean passive is a very negative term um and yet for this library it actually is passive it just sits there and does it all itself and this is quite wonderful because i think it's the first time that you know it's works as a model to frankly explain 
that no, this is the basic principle. You let the building do the work. It's passive. It doesn't mean there are no active systems anywhere, but it's really a demonstration of the word actually meaning something. One of the reasons I'm so impressed by it, and again, to summarize, I think the main thing is it's that idea of engineering working together with architecture to solve the problem instead of architects just saying, okay, here's my box, make it work. And that's what's so impressive to see architecture and engineering married so beautifully. And it continues to impress. So I don't have anything else. I'd like to thank you. I did have one last question. You've turned the archive world on its head. What's next? What next revolution do you think you're going to cause? Are you working on anything else that's interesting, world-changing in the way that this is? We're working on another archive, but I don't know if that's going to change the world. It's it's a different one because it's always everyone seems to be different. It's a absolutely massive bookstore. They worked out the equivalent bookshelf length as being 140 miles of bookshelf, but it's um you know it's a fully automated warehouse eventually to avoid this collection going up in flames. It's kept at a reduced in oxygen environment, and you do that by using in some sort of osmosis system to separate nitrogen and oxygen from the air and pump in nitrogen. They've got some buildings using this system already, and the energy consumption is pretty high, but it doesn't take long to work out that it's the leakage of the building determines the energy consumption. The leakier it is, the more nitrogen you have to keep putting in to replace the oxygen that is leaking in. So with a sort of passive house brief to make it environmental and low energy, we're actually again not doing anything that's a classic passive house but really trying to get more airtight than the contractor is in any way happy with and um, but we think it's possible and that, that should be the way to make it energy efficient is to make it airtight as a little sort of um, additional benefit of this system we found that the process of generating the nitrogen first of all required the, the moisture to be stripped out of the airstream so we got a dehumidifier thrown in for free which is means that, that hopefully will be the um, only bit of plant needed except it's packed full of electronics and motors and all sorts of stuff which will either provide enough heating or too much they won't even tell us how much yet that's the snag with that one it's interesting what percentage do they take the oxygen down like the what it's 22 percent normally i'm curious what do they take it down to in there i think it's 16 15 or 16 yeah just a a bit under 15 under 16 just to allow for the slight variation and measurement error People walking in there aren't going to like fall over dead in a minute or anything. No, but they, no. people aren't going to be in there normally. You could be in there for a couple of hours if you were healthy, but they're kind of a bit concerned about taking the responsibility for making sure everybody's healthy, really. Right. <laughs> Some ways it's similar to being on an aeroplane because of the... Well, that's what I was just thinking of. I was thinking of all the partial pressure from my scuba diving days and all the rules like that and sort of it's like... With the partial pressure of the oxygen, it's like you say, probably like being in an airplane or being in Denver or somewhere. Yeah. Interesting. But there was a perceived as a risk thing's interesting. It's like with the the archives when you come to design, if you design to hit a certain temperature and humidity, you've covered yourself in terms of design, you've specified it, that kit should be able to do that. The fact that that kit will go wrong one day is kind of not your fault because stuff goes wrong, isn't it? You design kit that if it did work, it would work. So when you say, well, don't do the kit and, you know, we're pretty sure it'll be, it won't go above or below those conditions, but it might, we can't guarantee because we're kind of at the mercy of 
this thing freewheeling, it's a different type of risk, if you like. So if you want to write something to a contract, so you start having conversations with the client saying, well, if we had an extreme summer where, you know, blah, 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 it got hot, you know, didn't cool off, then the building might go above, you know, maybe 23 degrees, 24 degrees, you start having these conversations. You can't guarantee it will be under 23 or 22 or whatever number. So you have to have these slightly nuanced but conversations, which again, shouldn't be difficult, but most contractual stuff says, look, you know, it will achieve this. But then that's the design. And then reality we know is something else. But that kind of that's, you know, if it ends up in court, you say, well, we designed it right, uh, but it failed, you know, or it wasn't maintained or it was installed wrong or someone, the people didn't use it. It was always a thousand people to blame. Um, right. The passive approach is just kind of, yes, we can't guarantee that, but it's unlikely to go very wrong. Dan, oh. I have nothing else. No, no, I think that's been really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's interesting taking something as specific as this and trying to apply it to other scenarios. But I think the the difficulty in its application is instructive, if nothing else, perversely or conversely. I don't know which one's right. Yeah, books are easy. People, that's always the hard part. And people are the bit we invest the least amount of time in. We don't build buildings to conserve the health of people, usually. Not even hospitals, Jesus. So if anyone's interested in following up on this, where can they find you guys? Where will they find... Will it be including links to things in the show notes? We've written some papers on this as we've sort of built experience. We've generally... The Passive House Conference, usually, although it's not really an archive conference at all, that's been a... You know, it's become a bit of a ritual for us to try and get a paper in, although I didn't manage one last year. So on, on the Elemental Solutions website, there's papers that Alan and I have written. We mentioned Tim Padfield, conservationphysics.org. Um, sadly, so he died a few years ago now, but his website's still there, and that's a really good starting point for all this. Yeah, really good. Oh. Very simple, old-fashioned website as well. Yeah, it's just proper PDFs and text things. And you know, what's what's quite interesting is that the what's quite nice, generally retrofit, is just really hard, isn't it? You know, with anyone you've written about this, Lloyd, with like, looking at your existing building, how to even get a fifty percent reduction in carbon, it's it's hugely invasive and difficult. The archives, you know, existing buildings, we can easily get sort of tenfold or more reduction and, you know, for kind of no catch. So it's it's kind of easy, low fruit. So it's quite reassuring when you're struggling with the day job, trying to do more difficult stuff um, to get a few projects where you can do something quite simple with very big, big results. But it is very niche. All right, then. Well, uh, thank you for joining us at home. Uh, it's really appreciated. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. Please. Uh, review the podcast a written review would be ideal five stars the algorithm <laughs> only wants five stars nothing else makes any odds so please be generous and feed our needy egos all the usual things subscribe to passive house plus by advertising if you are advertisers fellas do your private practices need to advertise at all at the moment i can i know a great man with some late space uh no all right um talk to us at the consultancy we're doing all sorts of projects around messaging, research, proposition development. Um, and join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC. And to all the ladies out there, check her own space. Have I missed anything? Oh, uh, Lloyd Substack, Carbon Upfront. Check that right. out. It's in the show notes. Last chance to plug anything, fellas? Are you talking anywhere? No? Quiet <laughs> 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 <Quite> life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank Lovely. you again. Great. All right. Well, yeah. I'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye. This is actually goodbye now. I think. <laughs>